Hey everybody, I'm Alistair Stevens. Welcome to a somewhat delayed Point North one-shot lecture on Casablanca from 1942. A little background before we get started. This lecture was delayed from earlier in the week because there was a cry, a raucous cry, demanding a live tweet of this movie. So rather than produce this, this uh, live session on Wednesday afternoon, it was pushed back to Friday so that we could live tweet the movie together on Wednesday evening, which was a, a huge amount of fun. It was really great to sit and watch this, this uncontroversial classic. I think, with the, the Point North community. That was a ton of fun. Thank you to everyone who joined in that live tweet and to everyone who caught up with it after the fact. I then sat down to begin this live session earlier this afternoon only to discover that a, a fire truck was parked right outside the studio window. A fire truck with a very loud engine was parked right outside the studio. So the audio would not have been optimal. The audio would not have been and been quite there, I think, for the live sessions. So uh, I should say the fire truck wasn't uh, attending to an emergency. It was uh, just taking care of, of something trivial in the backyard of the house next door, which is being renovated. So uh, everything is fine. Everyone is good. The fire truck has now departed. You can hear me, which is, believe me, a stark improvement on where we were just a few minutes ago. And now we are ready to talk about Casablanca, which you guys is just one of my favorite films. It is one of those classic movies, which I think is completely deserving of its reputation. And we're going to dive a little into exactly why it is deserving of that reputation in a little bit, because it's not a movie that that unclasps its bosom readily. It is not a movie that, that draws the viewer in immediately, or at least not all the way in. It is easy to be somewhat enchanted by Casablanca without ever really feeling the, the structural movement of the story beneath you. It, it is a deceptively well-crafted movie, which is, in its way, rather surprising, because if you read about the production history of Casablanca, it's kind of a mess. It's just kind of a mess. It was adapted from a previously unproduced play. That play was bought for $20,000, the princely sum in 1940, I believe, of $20,000, which was completely unheralded at the time. It was, uh, it was, it was uh, without precedent at the time because no one had ever spent that amount of money on an unproduced play as a template for a movie. The play survives relatively well through the adaptation process, but pretty much everything that we care about, pretty much everything that is definitive of Casablanca was added during the rewrite session, um, which was itself fairly complicated. Uh, the Epstein brothers, Julius and Philip Epstein, came in originally to write the script, but were then called away to work on another project. So Howard Koch wrote the rest of the script, except he didn't really because a lot of the script was picked up in rewrites during shooting and then even after shooting. Uh, one of the little pieces of trivia that you've probably heard about Casablanca is that the very last line of the movie was not in the script, that it was added a month after they had finished shooting and Bogart was called back into the studio so that he could ADR the line, so that he could uh, record the line and have it edited into the film after the fact, which is incomprehensible. It's almost impossible to imagine the end of Casablanca without that line. It's one of those decisions where you think, at some point, someone must have said, we really need a cap here. We really need to, to put a button on this. We really need something to unify the whole movie right there at the end. Its absence would have been baffling, I think. It's very, very difficult to think about that final scene without that, that famous last line. This is... An interesting movie, too, I think, from the perspective of, of the movie industry, because it wasn't a terribly, uh, terribly well-thought-of movie on its initial release. The critical response was fine. It did well enough. It was only after the fact, certainly after it won uh, three Academy Awards, including the Academy Award for Best Picture, it was only after its initial release that it started to gather some real attention, some real critical attention. It was made in 1941 for the princely sum of $878,000. I'm sorry, that is $1,000, less than a million bucks to make this movie in the early 40s. And it took on its initial release 3.7 million, which made it a success. It was fine, but it was one of hundreds of movies turned out by the studio system at that point in that year. So, Casablanca was never supposed to be, despite its relatively A-list cast, it was never supposed to be the kind of prestige picture that we would assume it to be today. It was never supposed to be Oscar bait. It was never supposed to be the kind of thing that would define a studio's output for a year. It was just another story that was churned out. 
What makes Casablanca special is quite simply the quality of the writing. I was struck watching it this last time that though there are a number of individual shots in the movie which are impressive, the, the cinematography is at times very impressive, there really isn't much to the direction of the movie. In fact, some of the direction is just flat out bad. And when it isn't bad, it's entirely formulaic. It's entirely predictable. The way that we block shots, the way that we frame shots, with very few exceptions, they are completely conventional, completely traditional. And the performances, while the key performances, I think, are legitimately great, the performances are not necessarily great across the board. The A-list actors bring their A-game, as you would expect them to, but even then, the performances don't ever, I think, really outstrip the script. What makes Casablanca shine is the quality of the writing. And it's the quality of the writing in terms of the individual lines of dialogue. There are so many memorable lines in this movie, so many. I can quote just whole sections of this movie pretty much verbatim because the dialogue is impossibly well-crafted. And it is well-crafted in a early 1940s kind of way. It is very performative. It is very... Uh, very demonstrative. It's not naturalistic. It doesn't intend to be naturalistic. It is almost theatrical in its in its uh, fine detail. But what elevates it is is its precision, is its wit, is simply the density of the dialogue. There's so much happening in this story, and yet the story moves so swiftly. I'm always surprised watching this film how quickly the first hour moves. It really does slow down once we start getting into Rick and Elsa, once we really start getting into the backstory in particular, the flashback to Paris, while it is beloved, and while I love it thematically, while I love it romantically, it doesn't completely serve the pace of the story, the pace of the actual narrative, the part of the narrative that we care about. It feels like it takes a long time. And when we come back from that, we don't really have the same momentum that we had going in. But that aside, the pacing is beautiful. The density is beautiful. As I said, the performances may not elevate the writing, but when the writing is this good, you don't need the performances to elevate the writing. This, I think, is one of the reasons that Casablanca has endured as a true classic, as one of the definitive texts of 20th century cinema, is simply that it is crafted, is that it is not terribly avant-garde, that it is not terribly progressive, it is not terribly ambitious even, but what is there is almost pitch perfect. So we're going to talk a little about some of the elements, we're going to talk a little about the noir elements of Casablanca, because while Casablanca is not traditionally heralded as one of Bogart's great, you know, noir successes, I would argue that it is at least as much a noir story as something like The Maltese Falcon, for example, which is a movie I'm going to be referencing a couple of times. And honestly, which is a movie that that I may well be talking about within the next month or two, because uh, I really enjoy this perspective on classic texts, because the truth is that that the movie industry in particular has a very short memory. The movie industry moves on so rapidly, but... It does so in a kind of, of um, a spirit of recycling. It does so with, with a spirit, not so much, you know, reinvention as it is, you know, a return to basic principles, which have already been established and already work, oftentimes framed in a, in a more modern style with a more modern sensibility, with a more modern aesthetic, but still we're telling similar kinds of stories. And that becomes evident when you look back at these classic tales. Yes, 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 there are things in Casablanca which feel a little icky to modern viewers, though honestly, not as many as you might expect. Most of the problematic elements from the perspective of, of you know, a modern socio-political consciousness are purposeful. They're there deliberately, and they were intended to be provocative. I'm thinking in particular of the depiction of, you know, Renault and his slightly loathsome approach to uh, trading visas for sex, which, curiously, there is so much in this movie that was cut. There is so much in this movie that was that was played down during the editing process, and I guess during the last stage of the writing process, during the shooting, and then also during the editing process. It was supposed to be much more graphic initially. It was supposed to be there was supposed to be no doubt that Renault was extorting sex in exchange for visas. That is still absolutely present in the movie. There's no way that you can watch the movie and not get that point, but it is much less explicit. 
And that does something remarkable to the character of Renault, which is it allows us to like him. It allows us to absolutely believe that he is a scoundrel, believe that he is, you know, almost outright villainous, that he is wildly corrupt, but still somewhat likable. And that is compatible with our understanding of the world of Casablanca. We'll talk a little too about how Casablanca works as, as a place, geographically, how Casablanca works as a kind of frontier, a kind of, of both escape from fallen civilization and also a kind of, of alternative civilization. And we'll talk, of course, about how Rick's bar works as the embodiment, or at least the facade of civilization right at the heart of Casablanca. We'll definitely talk about all of that. But I have a few people with me right here in the YouTube chat. I have Aaron and Carla and Sarah and Tom is here. Um, Tom says, uh, let me see here. Sarah says, Casablanca is not considered a noir film. And though I tend to buck the ideas of canon, I'd agree, not really a noir film. Sarah, I hope to change your mind by the end of this discussion. It is, uh, it is pretty definitively noir. I think um, it doesn't affect the trappings of noir to a very great extent, though they're not entirely absent either. But in terms of its thematic landscape, well, I'll make my pitch and you can see what you think. Um, Aaron says, it's a bitter outsider with a heart of gold who flouts and sacrifices himself to a corrupt system to save a purer soul. Aaron, that's basically everything that I was going to say. Yes, that's the heart of noir right there. In fact, let's begin with, with this discussion of noir. I was going to say this for a little while, but I guess this provides a good frame for the rest of our discussion. Um, I've said before in other uh, one-shot sessions and in other ongoing podcasts that there are basically to my mind, four kinds of heroic archetypes. The the classical hero, your, your Hercules, who is heroic simply by virtue of his birth. He is heroic because he is innately special. So the rules do not apply to him. That's the classical hero. Then you have your chivalric hero, your your knight archetype, who is not special, who who is heroic because of his acts of service and because of the way in which he embodies the virtues of his society. Then you have your Byronic or romantic hero, who is the, the romantic outcast. He does not embody the virtues of society and is heroic in part because of the absence or the excess of virtue, that he is, is not compatible with society, but is heroic nonetheless. The last type of hero that we commonly discuss is the modern hero, is the 20th century hero, is the noir hero. And the noir hero exists in a world that is itself corrupt. This is what differentiate. This is what allows us to to differentiate between the Byronic hero and the noir hero. Neither of those people are necessarily classically good men. They are oftentimes roguish, oftentimes cynical, oftentimes a little warped, oftentimes have a heart of gold. Ultimately, they are still heroes after all, but they don't play well with others. They don't play well with their cultural context, with their societal context. The difference between the Byronic hero and the noir hero, or one of the differences between them at least, is that the Byronic hero exists outside of society, but we understand that society is still good. In Wuthering Heights, for example, Heathcliff exists outside of society. He is an outcast. He is not not a harmonious part of his his context, his his community, his society, his culture, but we understand that that culture, that society is still good. The noir hero exists outside the bounds of his society, but we understand that the society is bad, the society is corrupt, the society itself has fallen. One of the other things that distinguishes the noir hero, and obviously this is going to be of, of primary importance in our discussion of Casablanca, is that the noir hero cannot be saved. The noir hero will never win. The noir hero has already oftentimes been tainted, been corrupted by the world in which he finds himself. The noir hero is less interested in gaining victory for himself than he is gaining victory for others. The noir hero oftentimes wants to save the dame. He wants to save the woman. The woman here as a symbol of innocence and hope and purity. The woman here representing those things, those qualities, those virtues, which are not represented in the noir hero's society or necessarily in the noir hero himself. He wants to get her out. He wants to get her away. This is the classic, you know, noir detective trope of the, the damsel in distress who turns to the detective and just asks for help with this one thing. And through the course of the story, he, he solves her mystery. He, he rescues her from whatever it is that's, that's afflicting her. And then 
she leaves. She goes off to a small town or goes off to a farm upstate or goes off somewhere. She leaves this world, and that is the victory. The noir hero traditionally, with minor subversions in certain stories, the noir hero traditionally doesn't get the girl. He doesn't go with her because he has already been tainted. He has already been corrupted. He has already fallen too. So he is working within a corrupt system and often embodies, if not fully, then at least in part, some of the vices of that corrupt system. And we certainly see that from Rick in Casablanca. He is cynical. He is jaded. He is weary. He is almost nihilistic. He is certainly mercenary in his approach to his dealings with uh, with the world around him, in fact, with, with pretty much everyone. He represents this as playing fair, but it lacks a certain moral cohesion. It, it lacks a certain moral perspective. And that absence is absolutely emblematic of life in Casablanca at this time. It's absolutely emblematic of of frontier cultures throughout the Second World War, throughout the 20th century, arguably. I think that Casablanca exists as an independent, you know, pirate rogue nation during this time in history. It is, it is certainly under the dominion of free France, but it is not entirely, you know, um, it is not entirely of that culture. It is a frontier town, like so many frontier towns, that is populated by expatriates, that is populated by those who are there out of obligation, those who are there out of a mercenary desire to exploit this, this vulnerability and confusion for their own advantage. It is not a contiguous part of an extant culture. It is something different and unique all by itself. And whenever you have a frontier culture, whenever you have a frontier community, there is a natural tension between the forces of civilization and the absence of civilization, the, the kind of restless anarchy of that frontier community. So we get some of that in Casablanca, but of course it's complicated still further by the tension between, well, the literal tension between the Free French and the Germans, of course, but there are also other forces interested in Casablanca. There are other pressures applied to Casablanca. So this frontier world, this, this community that has been removed from its context and transformed by the coming of the war, this community that was never intended to be this and is now bearing this enormous weight and, and cracking under this enormous weight, this is our fallen world. What's interesting about Casablanca versus a noir story that takes place on the mean streets of LA, for example, or Chicago noir or New York noir, one of the th interesting things about Casablanca is that Casablanca itself is still something of a beacon. It is still something of, of it represents hope itself, and that may be a futile hope, it may be a reckless hope, and it may ultimately be a, a, a hope that cannot be manifested. But nonetheless, it represents that kind of hope. And Rick's connection with Casablanca is, I think, truly indicative of the noir hero. So all of that is to say, noir stories are predicated on the idea of a fallen hero in a fallen world striving to save something that is innocent and pure and better than he is. And if that doesn't feel like a read of Rick and Ilsa, then I don't know what does. Um, yes, yes. Rick doesn't stick his neck out for anyone, says Aaron, except for her. Oh, and all those other people. Yes, um, Rick's... Well, one of my favorite lines is is uh, when Renault accuses Rick and then confirms later in the movie, uh, confirms that Rick is a sentimentalist, that he is still guided by the beating heart, that he lacks the truly mercenary pragmatism of Captain Renault or, or Senor Ferrari or any of the other characters who have so completely fallen into Casablanca. Rick is affecting this cool distance. He's affecting this, this jaded cynicism, but it isn't really true. And we get a few instances of this. Renault trying to, to excavate Rick's character, and you get the sense that that is not the first time that they have had that particular conversation. We get uh, um, Herstrasse trying to excavate Rick's character, and we, we understand that this isn't the first time that Rick has gone through this kind of, of interrogation either. But it turns out, of course, that it's Ilsa. It turns out that Rick was never jaded, had never really fallen, that it wasn't the world that crushed Rick's spirit. It was the girl. But now, years later, it is the world. Now, years later, he can't be 
saved. He can't he can't leave. He can't simply stop. He he may leave Casablanca at the end of the movie as we as we had that discussion between Rick and Renault right at the end, but he's never going to to leave this fight behind. He's always going to be a part of this world. Let's see. Um Oh, Becca has shown up. Hi, Becca. Good to have you. As, as Aaron says, I just finished recapping Noir, so you can uh, probably rewind the podcast and listen to all of that. Yes. <laughs> so that is my argument for why Casablanca is a Noir story, is, is simply that um, that Rick's desire to save Ilsa, his recognition that Ilsa, and, and, and Victor too, of course, this isn't, this isn't a simple plot. It certainly isn't as simple a plot as we might initially believe, and I'll return to that in just a moment. Um, Rick's desire to save Ilsa and ultimately his his ability to save Ilsa is a classic noir trope that is that is pretty fundamental to to our, our understanding of what noir uh, what noir stories are for and what they do and how they accomplish those goals. Um, I said that uh, Casablanca is not as simple as it may appear and that's definitely the case and it plays off in a really interesting and and surprisingly sophisticated way it plays off that same simple reading of the core text right at the end of the movie when when uh, when rick is is playing up the idea that he is going to leave casablanca with ilsa that he is going to take the girl and just go and and this is going to be a much more conventional kind of plot we, the audience, are led to believe that that is going to happen because there is a force of narrative momentum there. The twist that it is actually Victor and Ilsa who will be leaving and, and Rick is going to remain, that he is going to sacrifice his hope of, well, what is Rick hoping for? What is it that, that could even you know, hold any allure for Rick at all in the absence of Ilsa? That, I think, is an open question. And if you have thoughts, please contribute in the YouTube chat right here. Um, but, but rather than pursue a personal goal, Rick is instead going to pursue an abstract goal. He's going to do the right thing. Capital T, capital R, capital T, the right thing. He's going to get not just Ilsa. It's not just about the woman that he loves. It's about her husband. It's about the good fight. But it's also about recognizing that Ilsa was married to Victor even then, even back in Paris. She thought he was dead and then discovered that he wasn't. But nonetheless, that marriage still has value. It still has primacy. Rick, in that moment, realizes that that despite her feelings for him, Ilsa really does love Victor. That relationship, that, that complexity, that twist, I think right at the end of the movie is one of the reasons that Casablanca has endured the way that it has, has gained the critical and popular following that it has. It's a surprisingly deft and sophisticated twist. It's a surprisingly ambitious bit of character work in a movie which I think it's fair to say doesn't always do as much as it could with its characters. A lot of the characters in this movie are represented in fairly flat and conventional terms. Many of them are bordering on the stereotypical. And there are readings of Casablanca which, which would assert that this is purposeful, that by leaning into these archetypal depictions rather than going a little further to develop a full-fledged characterization of Herstrasse, for example, of Victor Laszlo, for example, of Signor Ferrari, for example, of Ugarte, for example, these characters are left deliberately flat are left deliberately archetypal because then it becomes representative this is i guess the, the the semiotic argument about casablanca is that that by leaving these characters um simple by leaving them elemental by leaving them archetypal we're saying something more profound about human nature we're saying something actually timeless about this very specific time and place. We're, we're actually saying something foundational about human interaction and about love and about loyalty and about cruelty and oppression and desperation and hope and hopelessness. We are, it might be argued, it has been argued, doing something a little more interesting in that regard. And while I am open to that reading, and while I think that there are, are elements um, of that interpretation which, which do a lot to recommend the overall interpretation, I'm just not sold. Because we must remember that this is a product of the studio system. This is very simply a cheap movie that was produced to, to fill out a roster when the appetite for movies was at something approaching an all-time high. That, that the studios were producing hundreds of movies a year, and... Casablanca was just another movie. It wasn't, as I said earlier, intended to be the movie that it became. 
I don't think that anyone involved in Casablanca, while it was while it was being produced, while it was being edited, while it was being marketed, even even while it was in theaters, we can tell from the the popular response at the time. I don't think anyone involved would expect it to consistently top the list of of best movies ever, to to consistently be in the AFI top one hundred, to consistently be referenced as not just one of the great movies of the 20th century, not just one of the definitive texts of the 20th century, but a, a truly beloved movie, a movie that that isn't just technically deft, that isn't just well-crafted, but but speaks very powerfully to the, the hearts of the viewers. I don't think anyone would have expected that. So I'm not sure that the the archetypal reading of Casablanca really holds up to scrutiny. I think that it is far more likely that these characters were simply kind of disposable, that they were simply, I mean, representative, I suppose, in the most functional sense of the word, that they were they were there to do a job, so they had to be what they had to be in order to do that job, and that was it. That was the whole ballgame. So if we miss any depth from these characters, if we wish that maybe Laszlo had a bit of crunch to him if he wasn't quite as flat, if he wasn't quite the, the the white knight that he appears to be, then that I think is understandable. But alongside that, we have some beautifully drawn characters. Rick, of course, is one of the all-time great movie protagonists, in my opinion. He is, as I've said, jaded and cynical. And then as we move through the movie, we learn that, well, actually not really. He's not really jaded and cynical. And even when Bogart is giving us his best read of that line, I stick my neck out for no one. There's a twinkle there. There's a spark there that suggests that maybe even in that moment, he doesn't believe it. And we are not supposed to believe it either. And then as we move through the movie and we see him start to thaw and we see his humanity, which is, I really think, a a very interesting direction to take this character, a very interesting direction to take a Humphrey Bogart performance at this point in his career, in all honesty, as we see him start to thaw and become more human. And then we move into the Paris flashback and we see just a very different character. We see something of an idealist. We see something of a romantic. We see someone who who is recognizably Rick, but who must have undergone great pain and hardship in order to become the man that we meet at the beginning of the movie. As we see these transitions, we are allowed enormously intimate perspective on on who Rick is. And I think that this is, I, I genuinely think this is one of Bogart's most complex performances. I think that this is one of his most subtle performances. There are moments which are less than subtle, but when he delivers and when he, he when he is given uh, when he is given a scene that rises to meet him, as it were, I think he really manages to deliver a, a great performance here. Um, Oh, Jane says, I think one of the first times that Rick really thaws is with the dueling anthems at the cafe. That subtle nod he makes to the band leader is brilliant. But even then, it's he's responding in part to Laszlo. Laszlo is the one who is driving the rebellion, and, and that is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. It's so astonishing. As those voices rise singing La Marseille, that's, it's, it's so good. It's so powerful. It's so rebellious. And of course, watching it right now, <laughs> reminded me of nothing more than Rogue One, a Star Wars story. This whole idea of rebellion and resistance, which is very powerful for understandable reasons in our shared culture at the moment, um, feeling that spirit of resistance and that feeling of rebellion and seeing it represented here by song, seeing it represented by you know communal and cultural identity, that works beautifully. But you're right, Rick just gives the nod. He's willing for this to happen, but he's not willing to take responsibility for it. He doesn't approach the band leader and say, play the Marseillais. He, he's much more reserved. But even then, you're right. I think we begin to see him thaw. We begin to see him crack. And then later, another one of my favorite scenes. Hey, you guys, this movie is just basically composed of a string of my favorite scenes. Um, later, the scene at the roulette wheel, where he is is helping the young refugees earn enough money, win enough money, so that they can get their visas and get out. This is... This is a completely inconsequential gesture because there are 50 other couples like this young couple right here in Casablanca. And tomorrow there will be 50 more and the next day there will be 50 more. Rick isn't taking meaningful action here. He's not solving the problem. This is not a plot in which the the chivalric hero, you know, the Captain America archetype fixes things. Casablanca is still going to be a disaster. The day after this movie ends, there are people struggling and and wanting and aching and dying in Casablanca. 
the day after this movie ends, people are still desperate, more desperate than ever. Rick doesn't solve that problem. He simply saves innocence. He preserves a light in the world. He preserves hope. Again, the noir hero. Um, let me see here. Uh, Aaron says, honestly, this is one of my favorite Bogart performances. He plays layers of sarcasm and sincerity with every line. Yes, good, good. He says, uh, Aaron continues, do you remember the super quick bit right during the first cafe scene where he just rips up a Nazi's check without any real comment? That's my first twinge of love for Rick. And this is what I'm talking about when I say that, that the writing in this movie is just so dense, so so well-crafted, so on point. We get so many little character beats that are present in the script that, that are almost dispatched with a casual efficiency by the cinematography, by the direction. The direction doesn't always rise to match the script, unfortunately, even when the performances, the individual performances, do. If you think about the spaces that are created through the course of this movie, and you think about the way that characters move through those spaces, the way that characters interact within those spaces, it's not always, always terribly impressive. It's oftentimes just a little flat. Now, that's not to say that there aren't individual shots. There aren't, aren't single shots which are just fantastic. And of course, the interplay of light throughout Casablanca is, is astonishing. The way that we use this, this chiascoric effect to, to plunge Rick into darkness and to elevate Ilsa into light and to have this, this complicated balance, this complicated exchange between darkness and light. The way that we play with that and the way that we kind of fold it back in on itself with this, this sense of, of, of referentiality that it feels, it feels complex and purposeful in, in a way that really does leave me breathless. So it's not to say that the movie as a production is a failure or anything even approaching that. It's just, I think the worst thing that you can say about Casablanca is that it's conventional. It's, it's pretty much by the numbers direction. And that's fine. That's fine because what happens then is that the direction gets out of the way of the performances and the script. And the script is really what it's all about. Tom says, sometimes hope is strongest when it seems futile. Excellent, Tom. Excellent. Yes. Good. Yeah, we're really lo we're really loving the way that that uh, that Rick stands up to the Nazis. Yes. Good. Good. <laughs> um. Let me see. Yes. Yes. This is yes. Um. Well. Okay. Yes. We're 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 folding a lot of this stuff in here. Um. The idea that that. The idea that Renault's sexual proclivities are perhaps not limited to the young women which are, ex are explicitly referenced in the script, or I guess even then implicitly referenced in the script, but go a little further than that, that he's also attracted to, to the young men striving for exit visas in Casablanca. This is just an example of, again, the complexity at the heart of this movie. Yeah, good. Uh, Becca says earlier in the YouTube chat, can we talk about how our feelings for first loves have really deep influences? This is the emotional heart of the story. And I genuinely think that, that your response to Casablanca is going to be dictated in part by your response to Rick and to Ilsa and by specifically your response to the Paris flashback. Um, or, or flashbacks, I suppose. There are multiple scenes included within that, that single flashback frame. Um, for me, the flashback sequence works less well because... I don't necessarily think that that is Bogart at his best. I don't necessarily think that he is giving his his best performance. I don't necessarily think that Bogart being fluffy, being uh, being snuggly and and affectionate the way that he is, is the best use of his skill in the movie. I much prefer their relationship as it is, you know, implied by the movie. I much prefer exploring that through through inference and implication rather than through this explicit flashback but it is you know what it is um i do want to talk a little too about um i should say that this is probably going to be a slightly shorter uh point north one shot lecture because of our technical difficulties uh i do want to talk a little about um about MacGuffin plots because one of the criticisms of casablanca and and i think that there are very similar films which are 
which are guilty of this to the degree that you can be guilty of something that isn't really a sin, but is just a piece of, of you know, narrative functionality, a narrative mechanism. Uh, one of the criticisms of Casablanca is that it is basically oriented around a MacGuffin plot. For those of you who aren't familiar, a MacGuffin plot is a plot wherein all of the major players are, are occupied in the pursuit of a single artifact, uh, something. The point of a MacGuffin plot, and perhaps the best example of a MacGuffin plot, is the Maltese Falcon. The point, uh, the, the, the thing that distinguishes the MacGuffin plot is that the object of the character's desire is irrelevant, that it is fungible, that you can take the Maltese Falcon out of the Maltese Falcon and replace it with a bag of diamonds, and you have exactly the same story, exactly the same story. That's not actually true in Casablanca because, of course, the letters of transit can't be a bag of diamonds. I mean, a bag of diamonds would still be really nice, you guys, and probably would be able to get you out of Casablanca in a pinch, but the letters of transit, which cannot be, absolutely cannot be rescinded, as we're told with fairly heavy-handed exposition right at the beginning of the movie, the letters of transit are key. What is being pursued here is not just hope, but the literal possibility of escape. It is a key. It is a, a very powerful symbol of, of leaving Casablanca behind. So for all that the pursuit of the letters of transit may feel a little, a little mechanically straightforward, for all that it may feel as though, um, you know, introduced at the beginning of the story, we get the the sequence with Ugar the, the, with Ugarte that leaves the letters of transit in Rick's possession. Then we're basically just orbiting them for the rest of the story until he puts them to use right at the very end. While that may seem mechanically a little straightforward, while it may seem as though the plot itself doesn't contain any major twists or revelations, at least right until the twist, the revelation, right at the end. I don't necessarily think that that's a legitimate criticism because while the plot is clean and fairly simple it's also perfectly efficient. It manages to propel the story forward really rather beautifully. There's never a question of anyone's goal. There's never, apart from the deliberate ambiguity regarding Rick's goal right at the beginning of the movie, of course, there's never really a question about what people want or why. For me, that works out really nicely. Um, Aaron says, MacGuffin is one of the best terminologies for movies to enter common parlance. Yes, it, it really is. It's, it's super useful, yes. Um, Jane says the music for the Paris scenes is so rich. I have the CD in our car, and it's the track uh, when every note—it's the track when every note brings back such clear and crisp images. I can definitely say that the music throughout Casablanca, and of course, as time goes by, it gets a ton of attention as well. It might, but all of the music through Casablanca is just extraordinary, lush and evocative and specific. This isn't a, a you know a, a generic orchestral score that has just been slapped onto this movie it is absolutely true to the piece it speaks to the piece yeah um Sarah says, you almost can't separate Casablanca from the wartime it was made in. Ultimately, it's a story It's a story of refugees. Then amends that, I think ultimately is the wrong word. It's also a story of refugees. I feel as though, um, I kind of want to decouple a couple of ideas there, Sarah. Um, you absolutely can't uh, extricate Casablanca from its production history, from the time and place in which it was created. That is, to a certain extent, true of all art, but clearly Casablanca carries with it a, a an urgent and 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 trenchant uh, commentary on on a, a, a very relevant you know applicability to events that were were happening around the time that the movie was produced and would continue to happen for a few years afterward. This is very much a movie of its time. This is very much a contemporary piece. And yet, because we break from our traditional settings and because we manage to evoke this, this almost mythic sense of Casablanca, it does, I think, endure. It does, it, it, it dates less poorly than many other films of its type. It doesn't feel as out of time, as out of place. And I should say, too, that while Casablanca may feel mythic in that regard, it is as naught compared to the, the, the mythic aspect of Paris. Those of you who have been listening to the Point North One Shots will have heard my discussion of Paris as, as a myth, Paris as a legend, Paris as a place of wonder, Paris almost as a kind of fantastical realm, back when I discussed Woody Allen's 2010 movie, Midnight in Paris. Um, and here we get a very similar evocation of Paris. Here we get a very similar sense of Paris. Nothing like as beautiful, of course, it 
shouldn't really shock you to learn that this movie was not shot in Casablanca or indeed shot in uh, in Paris at all. It was just shot on the Warner Brothers lot because it was made for less than a million dollars. And even in the early 1940s, that wasn't much money to make a movie. Um, so we managed to evoke Paris. We managed to evoke the exoticism, the danger, the 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 boundaryness the 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 degree to which Casablanca feels as though it is at the furthest limit of the world as though it has it has almost exceeded the reach of civilization the civilization is clawing at it ragged and bloody civilization is is striking out at Casablanca but Casablanca is simply so far from civilization that it can almost resist it can almost endure so instead we get blunt and violent action whereas the internal action that regulates casablanca is of course wildly corrupt because casablanca doesn't play by civilized rules though it does and i think this is this is curious and crucial casablanca does feign to imitate the conventions of civilization and that's true of course not just of ricks which is perhaps the ultimate example of this ricks seems like you know a, a, a classic nightclub everything seems fine when you're at ricks and we get so many beats and references through the story everyone's having a good time everyone has a good time at ricks any kind of trouble is immediately dispensed with everything here is is just fine you guys except of course it fundamentally isn't everything here is a thin facade ricks cannot hold so we have ricks as as an example of this kind of facade of civilization this veneer of civilization but this is true too of course of renault's forces the idea of the free french government here it, it's fine nominally but we we undercut it right from the very beginning with the idea of rounding up the usual suspects a, a line that we will return to right at the end of the movie this is a place of real violence of of almost outright anarchy we see that from the the corruption that is completely endemic here we see it from the inadequacy of the police from the performative aspect of of police action here we see it from the the you know the the actions of the pickpocket we see it from ferrari we see it from basically every character is super shady except victor laszlo and i guess the young couple that rick helps yeah so we're getting this sense of here that exists beyond the borders of civilization which speaks to to a very common aesthetic i think um during the second world war the idea that night was falling the idea that that twilight had come upon us and casablanca is a distant place and there's still a glimmer of light there's still a hope in casablanca you guys but even that is is falling under darker and darker shadow and even the light itself is somewhat fabricated that it isn't necessarily completely authentic so that idea of of exile that idea of of expatriate cultures that idea of of thrown together refugee cultures i mean this this combination of of expats who are there kind of voluntarily though of course even rick isn't there completely voluntarily and refugees who are desperate no one wants to be there and yet it's the place everyone wants to be so it gives us a really interesting kind of textural quality there as we're as we're thinking about um as we're thinking about the interaction primarily between casablanca and paris both mythic both exotic one entirely representative of the heights of the old world one almost synonymous with notions of civilization the other not the other almost antithetical to that even when we're pretending that we're still in paris even when we're pretending that we're still civilized people yeah um yeah aaron says so the budget for casablanca would have been 13.5 million dollars in today's money that's nothing even for indie movies of course um it is fair to say that movies are just more expensive to make now so direct one-to-one -one comparison isn't quite there but yes it was made for not much money we also have to remember too the the enormous efficiency of the studio system at the time movies were were mass produced during this period and were, were shot very quickly edited very quickly and then just just turned out into a market that treated them as though they were disposable because they were disposable there wasn't really a secondary market for movies at this point in history your movie would go into the theaters it would stay there for as long as it was popular and then when it was gone it was gone this is one of the reasons that casablanca endured i think is the academy award for best picture that it won the following year that that 
the idea that this movie was special, that it was, you know, one of the great and formative texts, though I kind of want to Okay, let me finish that thought first, and then I'll circle back around to the other thought. Um, that that acknowledgement by the Academy, that that the kind of swing of 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 critical and and popular you know approval toward Casablanca is one of the reasons that it has remained so vibrant through the through the years since. I do want to challenge the idea that Casablanca is one of the formative movies of the mid twentieth century. Um, Oftentimes we will confuse, particularly if you've ever been in the position where you're sitting down to compose a list of the top 10 best movies ever, for example, we will tend to confuse those movies which are workmanlike, those movies which excel but do not exceed, and those movies which are actually revolutionary, those movies which change everything. Citizen Kane, for example, is a movie that changed everything. The movies that came after Citizen Kane were not like the movies that came before Citizen Kane because of Citizen Kane. It completely changed our our understanding of cinematic language. It completely changed our grasp of, of narrative language. It changed our understanding of what movies could be. Citizen Kane is one of the most important movies ever. I think the same cannot be said for Casablanca. I think it is one of the best movies ever. I think it's enormously competent. I think it's enormously well-crafted, but it isn't, I think, important in the same way, because Casablanca doesn't change our understanding of movie making. It doesn't change our understanding of the industry. It doesn't change our understanding of, of the medium or of the art form of movies. It is simply a very well-crafted example of its type. And that's to take nothing away from it. I think that very well-crafted examples of their type are incredibly important and incredibly valuable. There is a virtue simply in excellence. I think we tend to, as a, a shared culture, we tend to overvalue novelty and revolution and fail to acknowledge all too often just excellence, just excellence. This is one of the things that I used to talk about all the time when I was producing the Journeyman Writer podcast, that, that the craft, doing the work, is a virtue in and of itself, and doing the work well is rewarding in and of itself. For me, that is where Casablanca is. It didn't change the industry. It didn't changed the world. But what it did was demonstrate what good storytelling can do, what good stories can be. Yeah. Let me see here. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, let me see. Jane says, hadn't the Allies just taken Casablanca in real life when the film was coming out? That would have made the frontier seem that much more realistic for audiences. Yes. That's, um, yes, though, I was thinking about this a lot, and I feel as though I don't have, um, I feel as though I'm not literate enough in this particular type of story. And, and by this particular type of story, I guess what I mean is stories produced during the war about the war that are not about soldiers and are also not about you know, the, the home front that are also not about domestic life during a time of war. Stories which are about, again, the fringes of the civilized world. Stories that are about places which exist adjacent to this primary conflict and are obviously overshadowed by this primary conflict, but aren't necessarily of this primary conflict. I feel as though this is an entire subgenre of, of wartime storytelling. And, and I would really like to unpick that and try to get a sense of the ways in which Casablanca, as depicted in the movie Casablanca, is in any way intended to be accurate, intended to be factual, or is always representative, that it is always um, that it is always a narrative construction, that it is always larger or, or more heightened or more abstract than the real Casablanca was. Um, that's not to suggest... <laughs> that's not to suggest that the real Casablanca was anything like the Casablanca that's depicted here. I don't think that's true for a second. Um, but I do think that the depiction of these spaces, these fringe spaces during that particular time period is fascinating. And I think that the way in which we engaged with the war during the war, the way in which we mythologized parts of the war during the war, I mean, this is, this is an urgently contemporary story and yet feels timeless. 
And I think that that exists, that that is true in part simply because of the excellence of the writing and the, the, the universal applicability of, of Rick and Ilsa's story, um, at least in broad strokes, if not in actual specifics. I think that's all true, but there is also a sense that Casablanca itself is, is somehow mythic, is somehow otherworldly. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Let me see. Um, Writer Greg says, thanks to my daughters, I have a great appreciation for Barbie and the 12 Dancing Princesses. If you want to talk about mass-produced movies, look no further than the Barbie movies, but seriously, it's better than it should be. I completely believe it. There is a, um, gosh, one of the straight-to-DVD Tinkerbell movies. I wish I could remember the subtitle. I will look it up after I'm done here, and I will tweet the subtitle of this movie so that I can remember which one it is. But there is one of the straight-to-DVD Tinkerbell movies, which is just a gorgeously constructed it's completely by the numbers it's completely conventional it will not surprise you but it is mechanically perfect and i have a real appreciation for stories like that yes aaron says hard to be romantic in a city that smells like sweat camels brackets wet dog and dung and diesel in this casablanca it's a bit of paris in north africa yes Writer, writer greg says i love the tinkerbells this is what happens when you have two daughters let me tell you i know i know i know Oh, I guess Carla has two daughters. Greg, you didn't say how many daughters you have. I think you should clarify that in the YouTube chat. Yes. All right. Let me see here. It is, well, I guess actually I'm almost out of time. I guess I've been running, um, I, I'm pretty much done here. Wow. Okay. That flew by, you guys. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I should say that immediately following this live session, I'm actually going to be doing a Point North Live Q&A over on the Patreon page. So if you aren't yet a Patreon supporter, though I believe that everyone here today is, you can head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia and pledge your support now. Give me maybe 10 minutes to pour a cup of coffee, and then I'm going to go and answer any questions that you may have. Stay tuned to the Patreon page for the link to that uh, that live session. That audio, along with the audio for this session, will be available within the next day or two. This session will go up. The audio will go up in the Point North One Shot podcast feed, which you can subscribe to through, through iTunes or your service of choice. The audio for the live Q&A will go up on the Patreon page. If you are a Patreon supporter, then you can copy the little audio RSS link Link that you get in the top right of your screen into your podcatcher of choice and everything will download there all the audio that i upload to the patreon page will just appear in your podcatcher like any other show which is pretty great actually now that i think of it pretty great um tom says coffee it's 10 after 10 it's 10 after 10 in the evening here i'm on beers he actually said 22 12 which took me a moment to process but yes tom where are you if that's true you must be in britain is that true maybe even western europe <laughs> Good, good. I, Aaron says that flew by almost as fast as Casablanca did. It was fitting. Yes, Casablanca, consistently a fast movie. I always forget how quickly it moves. It's kind of astonishing. Yes. Aaron says my Q&A questions will be about Casablanca. They definitely should be. Yes, good. Uh, and Sarah says, that was great. Very excited to discuss some more real noir here. Sarah says, it's 9 a.m. here. Guys, thank you for joining me from all over the world. Tom, he confirms, is in Wales. And that's a very lovely place to be, Tom. I hope it's lovely in Wales this evening. It's great to have you all here with me from, from all across the world. This is one of the reasons that I love hosting these sessions in the afternoon rather than my traditional evening slot, because I just I feel as though it's open to more people all across this great nation. Guys, you are all magnificent. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll be back soon with another Point North one-shot. If you have suggestions or if you have if you are a patreon supporter at the $20 a month level commands then get in touch and let me know I'm always looking for interesting stories to discuss thank you all so much I will talk to you all again very soon until then take care